We have made it to our start of the book of Mark. So because we're in the book of Mark this morning, I would, of course, like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. Hopefully you won't be disappointed, but we're not going to look at anything in particular in Mark yet today. Just to give some really basic information, familiar to many of you, I'm sure, the Bible is divided into two main sections. We have Old Testament and New Testament. And the Old Testament is before Jesus was born. Starts with creation and, and goes to 400 years before Jesus was born. And then the New Testament begins with Jesus' earthly ministry and continues into the church age. And the first four books that are part of the New Testament, that second division, the 27 books in the second part of your Bible, start with what we call the Gospels. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And most of you probably know that too. But it would be good for us to know what gospel means. Gospel means good news. Good news. It's as simple as that. The gospel, and it's according to, and we have four human authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about the works, the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the gospel means good news. And we have the four different books, and this is just a quick overview. You may know this, you may not. But Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience people who are familiar with the commandments and so on and the god of israel and his focus was god as king mark the book that we are setting out on this morning that we'll spend probably the next year on is written to gentiles in the roman world and we'll talk about that a little bit more and what he highlights is jesus as servant that is the way he comes at it showing that jesus is a servant luke was writing to Gentiles in the Greek culture, and he is writing as Jesus as a man, the perfect man. That's his focus. And then John is writing to the world at large, and you could say to the church in particular, and he is writing about Jesus as God. And why do we need four? So that we can get different perspectives, learn different things. There's overlap, especially in the first three. They're called the synoptics, the see together gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So 90% of what we're going to study in Mark, you may have studied before in Matthew or Luke. Maybe in John, but usually it's, it's those three that go together. But Mark has a little bit different emphasis. It's like if, if there were a major event, um, even something as mundane as, I don't know, let's say a car accident. That's not mundane. A car accident, and you get different witnesses, and they're going to have a little bit different version of what they saw. In the same way, God used human authors to give us a different viewpoint of some of these things. Mark is the shortest gospel, and many people believe it was the first one to be written. It's the earliest gospel. I mentioned a minute ago that he was writing to the Roman world. Many people believe he wrote it from Rome and for the benefit of Roman Christians, who, of course, would be Gentiles. Why is that significant? Well, some of what he wrote makes more sense when you understand that he's writing to the roman world what impressed romans someone wrote was power so mark demonstrates how the son of god used his power to serve others and he also had power over creation and death and the devil but there was something else that was important to roman that was getting things done now that they wanted everything done in a hurry and for that reason mark uses words like immediately the New King James that I'm reading from, we'll see that a lot when we get into Mark. Immediately, or straightway, or quickly, to describe what's going on. The focus, as I mentioned, 
is that Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. He's going to look more at the deeds of Jesus than the teaching of Jesus. If you think about it, if someone is a servant, are you likely, just imagine, we're not in that kind of situation, but imagine, are you going to hang on every word of a servant? Do people usually write down the words of a servant? Not really. So there is, there are parables, there are teachings of Jesus recorded in the book of Mark, but we're not going to see very many of those because it's very focused on the actions. What does a servant do? So Mark focuses on the deeds that Jesus did. When I say the focus is the servant of the Lord, the key verse is in Mark 10.45. I hope this is a little familiar to you. This is our verse of the month. Why don't you say it with me? Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. Good. That's the key verse. He came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life for many. So in the book of Mark, actions outweigh words. It's not that there aren't words. It's not that the words aren't important. But the emphasis is on actions. Some people have described Mark as the go gospel because it's just constantly on the go to this, to that. Mark also records more miracles than any other gospel. The style somebody described, and I like this, it helps us understand. It's a docudrama. We have these short clips or vignettes of the events taking place. So it's not a biography the way we think of a biography, but it's more like a collage or a mosaic of Jesus' life and ministry. So it's almost like Mark is describing a day in the life of Jesus. Or to get a little bit more accurate, he's describing several different days in the life of Jesus as we approach this book. Where did Mark get his material? Do we read about Mark in the book of Mark? It's a little bit of a trick question because some people say yes and some people say no. When we get to chapter 14, we'll talk about that. But many people believe that he may have been a follower of Christ, obviously not one of the 12 named disciples, but a follower of Christ and an eyewitness to at least part of Jesus' ministry. But even if he wasn't, he was closely associated with someone who was. And we're going to see the relationship between Mark and the Apostle Peter. So this gospel, more than any other, is giving us information from Peter's perspective. And Peter, of course, was not just one of the 12. You go to the list of the 12 disciples, and Peter's always the first one listed. He was usually the first one to speak up. He was one of the main characters in the book of Acts. And he was one of that close group of three who were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. So this gives us information from Peter. The way we have the book of Mark laid out in our Bibles, there are 16 chapters, and it divides roughly in half. That verse I just showed you, Mark 10, 45, is kind of the, the middle of it, because the first part shows Jesus healing, his teaching, the miracles, a few parables, and then from the end of chapter 10 into the rest of the book is focused on Jesus' crucifixion, and then ultimately resurrection and ascension. The theme then, as I understand it, and I may tweak this a little bit as we get through the study, but as I've read and studied so far, I believe that the theme of the book is servanthood and discipleship. Servanthood and discipleship. Jesus is the ultimate example of a servant, and he calls us to be his disciples, his apprentices, his students. And there's 
an emphasis in Mark on the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The author of the Gospel of Mark is, of course, Mark. Right? The Gospel of Mark is written by Mark. And we're actually going to spend the rest of our time today talking about him. This is much more of an introduction overview to prepare us to study the book, which will begin with verse 1, I believe verse 1 through 13 next week. So in our time remaining, I'm going to tell you about Mark. Before I do that, I want to take you back to 1995, before many of you I'm looking at were born. 1995, I was a sophomore in college, and I was at a Christian university, and every semester there pretty much took a Bible class. And the class that I took that semester is called New Testament Messages. And being at a Christian university, I went to more chapel services than I can remember. I took lots of classes. I don't know how much of college you remember, specific classes. There aren't that many that stick out that I can go back in my mind and, yes, I remember that day in that class. What we're going to talk about with this Gospel of Mark, this author, is what I learned about that day. The professor was Sam Horn. He's still a seminary professor. He's still a pastor. And he laid out a story I had never heard. I had gone to Sunday school. I grew up with Christian parents. I went to Christian schools. And somehow I got to college and had never really studied or heard anything about Mark. I just knew that he'd written one of the Gospels. And I can remember sitting there listening to what was new information to me. And I was just mesmerized. It was a story I'd never heard, which when you grow up in a Christian home, it's probably exciting to hear a Bible story you've never heard. And their bell rang, and I couldn't believe an hour had gone by. And I just sat there a minute. Because it was a message that was so encouraging to me. It, it's a message of hope. It's a message of restoration when we study the life of Mark. And I don't kid myself. I don't think any of you are going to go out of here thinking, oh, that went by so quickly. Oh, that was life-changing for me. I'm going to remember that 25 years from now. But I'm hoping that it will be encouraging to you, this message of hope and restoration that we see in the person of Mark. Now, you may hear this person described as John Mark. As a matter of fact, I may end up saying it that way at some point. John Mark. John is a Hebrew name. It was the most common Hebrew name, according to one source, during the first century, and Mark was the most common Roman name. So if you were looking at the baby books back then, they didn't really have those, but if you've been looking at the list of most common names from the first century, John would be the Hebrew name, Mark would be the, the Latin or Roman boy's name. And it's not that unusual as we read the Bible for someone to go by two different names. For example, Saul, Hebrew name, Paul, Roman name. Same idea. So if you hear him called John Mark, or sometimes John, or sometimes Mark, that's because he went by two different names. I'm going to try to refer to him as Mark to be consistent. But this person we sometimes call John Mark is never called that in the Bible. Here are the ways he's referred to, and this might be the reason I hadn't noticed or you haven't noticed all that the Bible has to say about him. When we start off here in Acts chapter 12, that's where I'm going to read in a moment, he's called John, whose surname was Mark. When we get to the next chapter, he's called John. When we get a couple chapters later, he's called John, called Mark. When we get later in the chapter of Acts 15, he's called Mark. And he's also called Mark in 2 Timothy 4.11. 
After that, we read in Colossians 4 that he is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So he's called Mark there, but with a little bit more information. And then finally, Peter in 1 Peter 5 calls him Mark, my son. So that's the different ways he is referred to. And then I have two basic ideas that I want you to capture with me today. These are the the main points for today. God is the God of second chances. And God is the God of restoration. He's the God of second chances. He's the God of restoration. And if you've been at our church for a while, you've heard me talk about him being the God of second chances. By that, I don't mean he's the God of unlimited chances. There comes a point when we all die. You can't just say, oh, I'll make a a decision for Christ later in life. No, I'm I'm not ready for it. No, I'm going to kick that down the road. He gives us lots of chances, lots of chances to repent of sin and come to him, even chances to confess sin and come back to him. Many, many chances. But it's not unlimited. There does come a limit. He's the God of second chances, and he's the God of restoration. He welcomes us with open arms. He's ready for us to come back to him anytime, and he welcomes us to do so. Specifically in our story today, he restores his servants to ministry and fruitfulness. So with all that as introduction, I want you to pray with me, and then we're going to dive into Acts chapter 12. Father, we are grateful to be able to look into this passage today even what we're just talking about that you are the god of second chances you are the god who restores thank you lord for providing us a way to come to you sinful though we are you have dealt with our sin you have poured out your wrath on your son jesus in our place and so we thank you and we praise you for that lord you are so long-suffering and merciful toward us And we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that someone here in this room, someone listening or watching online, would recognize the application of this story about Mark's life. This is someone who loved you and served you faithfully, but struggled at it. And that describes so many of us. So, Father, would you speak to us this morning? I'm asking, Lord, that through this character study and through your word as it's read this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and make make this story come alive, make your word come alive to us. Empower me to do that. Give us ears to hear. And allow your word to accomplish what you want it to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 12, verse 12, says, So when he, that is Peter, had considered this, considered what? That this is real, that I'm not dreaming, that I'm out of prison. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. The New American Standard says, you're out of your mind. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said it is the angel. Where did he go? He went to the house of Mary. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that there are a lot of different Marys. Which Mary is this? This is Mary, Mark's mother. Yep, that's all we know about her. She's Mark's mother. There are a lot of Marys, and that's how we know this one. But he, he went to the house of Mary. This is the mother of Mark, and she's the owner of this house. 
where they've gathered to pray. They're having a prayer meeting there in Jerusalem. Likely, we don't know this for sure, likely she was a widow because there's no husband mentioned and likely she was well off financially. How do you know that? Because the house is big enough for them to have a big old prayer meeting. The church was meeting at her house and she has a servant, at least one servant we know by name is Rhoda. Traditionally, this could be right, this could be wrong, but historically, a lot of people think that this may have been the upper room where the Last Supper was held. Could be. If so, that's probably the same upper room as we have at the beginning of the book of Acts. Maybe. Whatever the case, we have a group of believers who are gathering for a prayer meeting at the house of Mary, and it was a common enough meeting place that when Peter realizes, I've really been broken out of prison, that's where he goes. And he starts knocking on the door, as we've read. John, whose surname was Mark, uh, the ESV says whose other name was Mark, he's going to be an important figure for the next chapters of Mark, of Acts, rather. And he's going to go with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. So I have a little diagram to try to help a little bit. Mark's in the middle. He is related to his mother, who is Mary. We're going to find out later he's related to Barnabas, who is his uncle or cousin. He is aware of an associate, uh, an acquaintance of Peter at this point. And then he's going to go with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. So he knows all of these individuals, which are well known to people who've read the book of Acts. Peter is not his father, but 1 Peter 5.13 tells us that he's his spiritual father, much the same as Paul and Timothy were in a spiritual relationship in the sense that Paul describes Timothy as his son in the faith. Peter is describing Mark as his son in the faith. I'm at verse 25, still in Acts chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them, here he is again, John, whose surname was Mark. So this is the first time he's mentioned by name in scripture and he's mentioned twice in chapter 12 and what does it say he did he left home he's probably quite young by the standards of paul and barnabas and he left to go to antioch again antioch is the big church the mothership of this point in the spread of christianity that's the largest church of that time and they are going to antioch Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Pay attention. They also had John as their assistant. This is what we commonly refer to as the first missionary journey. That's what a lot of people have called it over the ages. Paul and Barnabas at this point are called Barnabas and Saul. Notice that. Barnabas and Saul are being sent out by the church at Antioch and they are going to spread the gospel. And there probably were more people in their team than what we know about. But the three that we have named are Barnabas, Saul, and John, or Mark. We're going to call him Mark. 
Those are the ones that are there. It says that John, or Mark, was their assistant. Remember, he's the son of Mary, and he is the nephew or cousin of Barnabas. What kind of assistant? Or your translation may say helper. Was he? What was he doing? Well, the word, KJV has minister. The word literally, it's an under rower. Somebody who's on the bottom level of a ship at that time who's rowing, a galley slave. Now, practically, I would say in modern terms, he was a gopher. He was going to go do this, run this errand, take care of this. He was a servant. That's what the term came to be. And some people think he had a little bit more to do with the, the missionary part of this than that. Um, David Guzik, for example, says he was a valuable companion for them because he grew up in Jerusalem and was an eyewitness to many of the events in the life of Jesus. He could relate them with special power to Barnabas and Saul and to the people they were preaching to. So maybe, maybe he was a reference for them. Maybe. But we begin this missionary journey, and I have two slides to show you. Here's what Barnabas and Saul did, and here's what Mark did. So here's Barnabas and Saul. They started off in Jerusalem. We know that. We read that. They went to Antioch. They were sent out of Antioch, and they go to those places. I'm not going to read them again. And they get to Perga. And from there, Barnabas and Saul continue on to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and eventually come back to Antioch to report on what happened. What are they doing? They're spreading the gospel. They're going to synagogues primarily, sh sharing the gospel and planting churches and going from town to town to town and sometimes getting kicked out and sometimes getting stoned, we read about. But they are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. That's what Barnabas and Saul are doing. That's what we describe as the first missionary journey. Next slide shows us what Mark did. Mark started at Jerusalem. We know that. He went to Antioch. He was sent out. He went with them to those first four places. Then he gets to Perga, and what happens? He goes back to Jerusalem. He didn't go all those other places with them. He left halfway through, roughly, probably a little bit earlier than that, of the first missionary journey. I'm reading now in chapter 13 of Acts, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. That's a very brief statement, Luke. That's who wrote Acts. He just tells us, kind of matter-of-factly, they came here and Mark left. And it tells us where he went. He went back to Jerusalem. We don't know why he left. We know only that he left. Some, I would probably say many, Bible scholars, commentators would say that he deserted. He quit. He left. He left them hanging. There are various reasons that that may have happened. It could be as simple as he was homesick and went home to Mama. Note that he went to Jerusalem, not back to Antioch. It is possible that it was a tough and dangerous road. It is possible that there was sickness. Malaria and, and those type diseases are common to that area that they were headed into. They hadn't been very successful, it seems. When they get to, to one of their stops, only one person is recorded in the Bible as being saved, coming to Christ. It is also possible, because if you, we're not going to read all these verses, but if you read chapter 13, you'll see that at the beginning, we have Saul and Barnabas being set apart by the Holy Spirit and being sent out. Saul and Barnabas. By the time you get to the end of this chapter... We have Paul and Barnabas. The order has switched, and so has the name. That's not a slip of the pen for Luke. Luke is a very precise historian. And he's switching it because when they went out, 
Barnabas was the, the better known one. As a matter of fact, Barnabas was uh, instrumental in getting everybody to accept Saul. Because who had Saul been? A persecutor, a murderer. Nobody was eager to have him on their team. But Barnabas, the son of consolation, that's what his name means, the, the, son, the, the one who comes alongside, the one who's willing to restore, he brings in Saul. That's what he was called then. And as they start going out into mission work, pretty quickly it, it becomes obvious that Paul is going to be the better known one. May have been the better speaker. May, don't know all the, the dynamics there. Certainly educated, yes. So that has flipped. Remember, who is Mark? Mark is nephew or cousin. He's a relative of Barnabas. So there, that may have rubbed him the wrong way, that all of a sudden Paul is the, the one who's getting all the attention. He's getting top billing and not Barnabas. Also, that switch. Remember, Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is a Roman name. So it may be that Mark, growing up in Jerusalem, was getting offended by what's going on. They're, they're adapting. Paul is being all things to all men that he might save some. He's adapting as he needs to, going by the name Paul instead of Saul, in order to reach Jews and Gentiles outside Israel. We don't know. There are many things it could have been. We don't really know. But he seems to have given up and gone home. Whatever the reason, we don't know exactly what it was. Whatever the reason Mark gave for leaving, Paul didn't like it. That's the important part of our story right now. Paul was not impressed by Mark and by his departure. Maybe he had in mind the words of Jesus that Luke had recorded in chapter 9. Jesus said to that man, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Paul may have been thinking, quitters don't belong here. We don't need somebody on our team who's a quitter. So let's stop for a second in our story of Mark and make some applications. First and simplest application is don't quit. There may be somebody here this morning that you are very much tempted to give up right now. You know what that makes you? It makes you normal, okay? If you have not been discouraged in ministry, then you must not be doing ministry. <laughs> it, is, it is discouraging at times that things don't happen as quickly as we think they should, or, or this person didn't make a decision for Christ, or doesn't want anything to do with it, or this person walked away, or I shared the gospel with this person, and it, he seemed to get it, but he's not willing to believe it right now. It just, it's not quite there yet. Or you pour your life into someone, discipling, and that person turns his back on you. There are lots of reasons that we can get discouraged and want to quit. But my first application for us is don't quit. Know that God is faithful. He will equip you. He will help you. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. That's how it is in New King James. I'm going to read a couple other translations for you. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. Let us not become weary in doing good, for in the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up. But what if you already quit? You're here this morning in a church service, so I don't know of anyone here who has quit, but there are people who have, have quit. There, there's a time you can easily look back on in your Christian life 
where you were closer to God. You were spending time with him in his word. You were praying. You were serving others. You were serving the church body. And now it's not like it was before. If you have quit, or maybe there's somebody else, you would say, no, I've really blown it. Maybe even nobody knows about it, but I've really blown it. God can't use me anymore. I failed big time. I got mad and I told somebody, I gave somebody a piece of my mind and that relationship, I haven't been able to get it reconciled and I, God, God can't use me anymore. I have this sin habit, this addiction that I just can't get past and I keep falling and failing and I just can't get there. God understands. He knows. He'll welcome us back. God is not finished with you. If you've sinned against him, Repent. Come back to him. Say, God, I'm sorry. I blew it. Please take me back. And he will. That's what we call repentance. Making that U-turn, that change of mind, that change of heart that results in a change of action. When you come back to God, by his grace, he is going to restore you every time. He is inviting you back. He is welcoming you back. He is waiting for you with open arms. Now, sometimes there are consequences for sin. There may may be a relationship that we cannot restore on this side of heaven. There may be consequences that you're going to live with the rest of your life here on earth. There may be a time, a waiting period, a transition period before you get back into ministry or maybe it won't look the same. Maybe it'll be different in the way that you serve. But as long as God leaves us here, he has work for us to do and he's going to enable us to do it. We're going to skip ahead now. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas finish what we call their first missionary journey and they return to Antioch. Now, remember, where was Mark? They go back to Antioch. Where was Mark? He went back to Jerusalem. Very good. He's in Jerusalem. They're in Antioch. Chapter 15, verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. After some days. How long? I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, but he measures it in days, so it probably wasn't very long. They get back from what we call the first missionary journey, and Paul's ready to go again. Let's go. We need to go check on them. Well, that's a very biblical concept as well. He wants to go see how they're doing. Uh, One of the people who was in town helping with our soccer camp outreach asked me the other day, what would you say is your bigger um, focus right now for your church? Would you say that you're you're more trying to reach out and see people saved and see people come into the church? Or are you more focused on what we call in-reach sometimes, building up the people in the church? And without being smart, I said, yes, yes, we need to do both of those things all the time. We desire to do both of those things all the time. And that's what Paul wants to do. He wants, we got to go check on these people. These are baby Christians, many of them. These are certainly baby churches, and we got to go check on them and make sure they're okay and make sure they're being built up and growing. Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. My relative, John, who's called Mark, let's take him along again. Verse 38, but Paul insisted And the verb tense means that he kept insisting that they should not take with them, check this out, 
the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. That's Luke's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's telling us a lot about what Paul was thinking. This guy's a quitter. This guy did not work out. I know he's your relative. This did not work out. He should not go. Verse 39, then the contention, the disagreement, became so sharp that they parted from one another. Paul and Barnabas, the dream team of missions, they went out on the first missionary journey. They agreed. Everything went well. They come back. Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark again. And Paul says, no way, Jose. That's the way it is in the Greek. And they, they argued. And they argued so intently that they finally said, fine. Barnabas, you want to take John Mark? Take John Mark. I'm not. We're not going together. Now, from an earth, uh, a human or an earthly perspective, that's bad. It's not a doctrinal issue that they separated over. But God still used it. Because as you keep reading, and we should read the rest of verse 39, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren of the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul followed his route that he was planning on. We know from other places in Scripture that Barnabas is from Cyprus, so that's where he goes to minister to his hometown. And what God does is multiply ministry through this disagreement. The kingdom still advances. And in case you're wondering the rest of the story, we know from 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul and Barnabas eventually reconcile. So it all worked out fine. Now, what were those main points? What were the main points that I gave you at the beginning? God is the God of second chances. This is Mark's second chance. We don't know why, but it seems like he pretty much blew it. He quit the first time. And Barnabas, son of consolation, the encourager, is saying, come on, let's go, buddy. You can come back. We'll work this out. We can do this. I'll help you. Secondly, God is the God of restoration. Now, wait a minute. If God is the God of restoration, then why did they split? Why did they separate? Because it was going to take time. It's often a process. If we blow it, if we mess up, we may not be qualified for a time for whatever ministry that we were doing before. We may need to grow up some more. If nothing else, I think Mark was immature, spiritually and probably other ways. So Barnabas is going to disciple him. That's what we need. We all need discipling. We all need teaching and training and someone who's been doing the Christian life longer than we have to encourage us and to come alongside us and help us. And that's what's going on. Sometimes that process takes a long time. And in Mark's case, Bible scholars think it took probably about 10 years for this whole process to occur. And at this point, I forgot to sh show you earlier, but if you look at the back of your bulletin, you have a bunch of references, because I've been hanging out in Acts 13 to 15 so far, but I'm going to jump around some more. And if you want to follow along, those are the references. But the next one I'm going to show you is 1 Peter 5.13. So first, Mark goes to Cyprus with Barnabas, and Barnabas is ministering alongside Mark. They're ministering together. And Mark is growing up. He's maturing spiritually. He's getting more ministry experience. He doesn't quit, it seems. He doesn't say this time that he goes back. We don't really know much about what's happening. But they ministered in Cyprus, and eventually Mark got to Rome. And that's where we are now, 1 Peter 5.13. She who is in Babylon, Babylon, I thought you were talking about Rome, 
that's code for Rome, elect together with you. So talking about the church at Babylon greets you, as does, check this out, Mark, my son. Mark, my son, I didn't know Peter had children. It's figurative. It's not saying that Peter was married to Mary back in Jerusalem. It's saying that he's my son in the faith. And maybe Peter's the one who led Mark to Christ. We don't know. At, at the very least, he's ministering to him there in Rome. They're there together in Rome. Peter would have known Mark from the earliest days because they were meeting in, the, in Mary's home. And as I mentioned earlier, tradition is that Peter was Mark's main source for the material in his gospel. So first with Uncle Barnabas, and now with spiritual father Peter, Mark is growing up. Mark is getting ministry experience. Mark is being discipled. I'm going to skip over to Colossians. You know how when you read Paul's epistles, especially, he'll get to the end and he's saying, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so. So-and-so is going to come see you. He's, he's kind of taking, taking care of the loose ends. Well, this is what he's doing here in Colossians 4.10. There it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul is writing to the Colossians. This is during his first imprisonment in Rome. And he instructed the, the church in Colossae that if Mark comes, Welcome him. Welcome him with open arms. So what we see is Paul is having a change of heart. Something's happened over these years. Paul doesn't feel the same way about Mark as he did. Instead, he's saying, this Mark, cousin of Barnabas, welcome him in. Bring him on. Welcome him as if you're welcoming me. Furthermore, when we get to Philemon 24, Philemon was from Colossae, so Two letters go in the same place, one to an individual, one to the church at large. And when Paul wrote to Philemon, he says in the verse 24 of that book, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. How's he describing him now? My fellow laborer. This one who left the work is now being described as a fellow laborer. And then during his second imprisonment, it seems, perhaps, that Mark was with Timothy at Ephesus. Because what we read Paul writing in 2 Timothy 4.11, it says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. He is useful to me for ministry. This is the same Paul who said, Nothing doing, he's not going with us. Within a 10-year period, he's saying, Bring him on. He's useful. He's a great helper. He would be a, a big asset to us right now. He'd be a big encouragement to me. So in case you're taking notes or you're trying to keep track of what's going on, here are the three statements. Remember, there may be as big as a 10-year span between these statements. But first, in Acts 15, we have the one who had departed from them. The one who had departed from, him, from them. That's Mark, the deserter, the quitter. By the time we get to Philemon 24, Paul says, he's my fellow laborer. And by the time we get to 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, he is useful to me for ministry. That's a big change. That's a huge progression. Isn't, don't we describe the Christian life, didn't Jesus describe it as a walk? Paul described it as a walk. It is progress. And sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. 
but it's progress. And this man, by God's grace, has made a great deal of progress. He's a different man. One who's now profitable and helpful for ministry. Warren Wiersbe said this, When the going got tough, Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas and returned home to Jerusalem. But by the grace of God, Mark overcame his first failure and became a valuable servant of God. He was even chosen to write the Gospel of Mark. So Mark is an encouragement to all of us who have started out in ministry with first attempts to serve God and failed. He did not sit around and sulk. He did not quit and stay where he was. Instead, he got back into ministry and proved himself faithful to the Lord and to the Apostle Paul. Some of you have heard me say this before, and it certainly didn't originate with me, but God uses only broken people. You know why? That's the only kind there are. God uses broken people because he has no one else to use. He chooses to use people, and we're all broken. We're all messed up. We all fail at times, fall into the sin that we struggle with in our flesh. There are no perfect people in this church or any other. There are no perfect pastors. There are no perfect church members. There are no perfect Christians. And what we have in this story that, yes, we have to kind of dig to, to figure out what it's saying about Mark, we have an example of someone who blew it. We don't know the specifics. We don't know why, but he quit. He went back. He turned around. He went back home instead of continuing on the missionary journey. But God restored him and God used him. There is nothing that you have done that prevents you from coming to God or coming back to God. There's nothing you have done that I can find in the Bible that would permanently prevent you from coming back into ministry. It may take time. There may be a process for it. But God will put you back into useful service for him. How does that happen? You repent and you return by his grace. What are the main ideas? God is the God of second chances. I heard somebody put it this way. Failure doesn't have to be final. Failure is not final. At least it doesn't have to be. Say, I blew it. Join the club. God still uses us. He uses clean vessels. If you have sin in your life, you need to confess it and start over again. If we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's righteous, he forgives our sin. He cleanses us as if it never happened. He justifies us. We've talked about that recently. Second, God is the God of restoration. If we repent, he restores. If we repent, he restores. And he restores his servants to ministry and to fruitfulness. So if there's someone here or online this morning that you've never come to Jesus, he's welcoming you. He's welcoming you with open arms. There's nothing you have done that prevents you from coming to God today. He is ready for you. He is willing and able to receive you. You say, I'm not ready yet. I have to clean up my life. No, that's, that's why he came to die. He is ready for you to come. He is ready for you to come back to him. If you've come to him for salvation, but there is some sin that you need to make right, if you've quit, or if you're struggling today with discouragement and you feel like quitting, and nobody knows it, 
It could be part of your Christian life. It could be part of a family relationship. It could be part of whatever. He desires for you to come back to him. He desires to restore you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I don't know for sure that I have forgiveness of my sins in Jesus. I kind of heard about him. I think I kind of understand it. I don't know for sure. But I am burdened about it, and I'd like you to pray for me. Would you let me know that by simply looking up with, at me and making eye contact with me right now? Christians, don't quit. If you've quit, turn around and come back. If you have sin to confess, confess it, forsake it. Be done with it. Is there a believer here this morning who would say, God has pointed something out in my life. I'm getting a fresh start this morning by God's grace. Bob, please pray for me. If that describes you, would you do the same? Make eye contact with me. Let me know that that's going on as a transaction between you and God. Okay. Anyone else? Yes. Anyone else? Father, you have seen the responses, and more importantly, you have seen the hearts of those responding. And Lord, you are so ready to forgive. You are so ready to accept. You are so ready to restore. And I thank and praise you for that. For these who have said that you're doing a work in their heart, give them courage, give them grace. May they respond and act on what you are calling them to do, calling them to change. Encourage us in you this morning. Strengthen us with the power that is in Christ Jesus and raised him from the dead. Continue to do your work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.